Colossians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through our, all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all the power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. How are you guys? If you're new or if you came in a little later, my name's Evan, and my wife Sandy and I have the joy of leading this church. Uh, we've begun a new series in this book that Greg just read from, Colossians. Last week was the introduction to the series, and today we walk through these 14 verses. So Paul is up to something really important in these 14 verses. So rather than just tell you what's going on, I want to show you. Can you throw the picture up on the screen? So uh, that, that stresses me out. So that, imagine if you would, a, you're on a trip from San Diego and you fly into an airport that you've never been to, like this. Um, and you're, let's say you, you taxi into gate B56 and you, have to, and you have 30 minutes to get to concourse E, gate 11, 30 minutes, and you've never been to this airport before, what do you do? Other than pray or freak out, yeah. Other than... Or, or maybe even more stressful, next slide, the Mall of America. So you're, you're, in, you're in middle America for some reason, visiting your grandma, it's her birthday. It's, it's her birthday, she's in Minnesota, you're in Minnesota, you need a gift today. So you go to the Mall of America, Four stories, 100, 400 stores, biggest mall in the, the nation. So you've never been there, and you, but you need coffee. And, and before you can do anything else, so you're not going to find a dark horse coffee. You, you, you will find a caribou coffee. And you'll, at this point, you'll take whatever caffeine you can get. So you've never been there before. You need coffee. Tonight's the birthday party for Grandma. What do you do? Yeah, in both of these situations, 
whenever we're disoriented and we're kind of like lost and maybe feel like hopeless, like I don't even know where my location in life is right now, um, we probably all do the same thing. We go to some spot in the lobby and we look for some huge map, right? A huge map of the airport or the mall and you look for some kind of like red dot that, that says three magic words. You know what they are? You are here. And then, and then suddenly things come to you, like you feel good about yourself again. That's exactly what we would do. We'd find the you are here dot. And immediately after finding the red you are here, even though nothing about the chaotic environment has changed, it's still a massive busy place, you now feel more calm, right? You feel better about your situation because you have just become oriented. You've become oriented correctly. You've begun to locate yourself. Hope is no longer quite lost, you know? You know where you're at. So these, these things happen in our lives. Sometimes you feel disoriented. Some of you might be coming to Park Hill Church today. There's a lot of you here. Some of you, it's, chances are a good chunk of you um, are new and you're here sort of for the first time. Maybe something happened to you. Maybe there's a loss that happened in your life. And it's kind of why you're here a little bit, maybe. And some of you have been here a long time, but you still feel disoriented. Maybe the joy you used to have about Jesus, maybe hitting the new year and you thought it would change stuff and it didn't quite change stuff, or, or you're still reeling from the loss of a spouse or job or a big life transition and things just feel different. Or maybe there's this sense, I just don't know how to find God's will. And you, you like have this idea of what God's will is supposed to be and things aren't turning out like you think. You didn't see this one coming. So you feel disoriented. And then add to all that, there's voices that tell you what you should be feeling and thinking, right? What should be giving you meaning? You know, like we should be, I should be more healthy, which is usually attracted to being, attached to being attractive in our culture. Or we should be, well, I should be more wealthy, or I should be educated, or successful, which could mean different things based on your family of origin, what was defined as success when you were a child. And maybe you actually have a lot of those things, and yet life still feels disorienting. You're, you're having trouble locating yourself. What do you do? Not just in an airport or in a, like a mall, but in life, what do you do to, to orient yourself? Well, as followers of Jesus, we actually have this center point of reality, and he is Jesus. He is this person who is the you are here. Jesus hands his followers a map that best reflects reality. Jesus calls it the way. And Jesus himself says that he is the you are here pin. He's, he's the dropped pin in the map. This is what Paul gives us in Colossians. So I'm introing these first 14 verses because this especially happens in these 14 verses. Paul's saying, you are here. Please see where you are. Here's the big picture map of reality and look where you are. You are in Christ. That is your position on the map. And from there, from your position in Christ, now you have your bearings. Doesn't make it easier, you just have your bearings. It can, it can make it easier. Your felt sense of calmness and, and shalom and meaning suddenly starts coming together, which adds to the joy of being alive. Even though circumstances around you could have stayed exactly the same, you're now rightly oriented. You have your identity. You are here in Christ. 
You have direction, which means we have concrete hope. We can see now where north would land us and where south would land us, understand. So Colossians is one big you are here sign. And this is what Paul's giving us in this letter, especially in these 14 verses. So let's get into it. This book is first and foremost a letter written to a young church. We're only five years old. Maybe that's how old the church in Colossians was. And it was written by a guy named Paul. And Paul starts all of his letters basically the same way. Here's Paul's, his favorite way to start a letter. Paul, basically, hey, I'm Paul, an apostle of Jesus by God's will. What does that mean? It means, hey, Jesus personally sent me to you with his authority. That's what Paul means. Someone sent with the sender's authority is what the word apostle means. So a helpful analogy for an apostle is like a sheriff's deputy, right? I've used this before. I used this last year. How many sheriffs does San Diego County have? One. Do you know his name? Extra credit. So it's William Gore is the San Diego County Sheriff. So there's one sheriff in town, literally. And, and, and now how many deputies does, does Sheriff Gore, how many people has he deputized? Do you know? Over 4,000 in San Diego County. Now, they're not all patrol officers. They don't all drive cars. There's, many of them are at desks and stuff. But, uh, but, but when you're driving 80 miles an hour on the freeway and you see red and blue lights behind you, what do you do? Do you say, oh, chances of it being Sheriff Gore is 1 in 4,000. I can speed up. Is that what you say? No, you respond to that deputy sheriff exactly as though he was Gore. Exactly the same way, because his authority is the same, or her authority is the same as Gore's. That's literally what the badge means. It's the sheriff's authority. So in the same way, Christ's apostles who wrote the New Testament carry Christ's badge. They, they mediate his same authority. Their words carry the same weight as Christ's own mouth, his words. That's why the red letters aren't like necessarily more special than all of the letters, because all of them carry, they come to us with the same deputized authority from Jesus. This is how to see the Bible. How Christians have seen the Bible for generations, ever since the first generation called apostles. That's how that works. And Peter starts, Lord, where else shall we go? Only with you are the words of life. And then Peter turns around and takes Jesus' words of life and puts them to paper. And Jesus stamps them with his badge. So slide six, we trust the Old Testament. This is how the Bible works. We trust the Old Testament because Jesus trusted it. He literally grew up on it. He defined himself by it. And then we trust the New Testament because Jesus entrusted it. This is, this is how the Bible works in the covenant family of Jesus. It doesn't work like that outside. You join the covenant and now that means you trust Jesus' way of thinking. So now we come to the New Testament like, whoa, the, word, the weight of Christ's authority is coming to us through these pages. And, and now we see verse 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Okay, so those two words, grace and peace to you from God our Father. This is the tone of the letter, grace and peace. Quick, quick thing on grace. You guys, this is God's favor. This is how God is disposed to you. God is looking for excuses to turn his face toward you with grace. Do you come here knowing this? If you're a Christian, this is just true. This is just the truest thing about you. 
That God's disposition towards you is one of grace. Favor to empower you to continue becoming like Jesus. You are here. Remember, this is where you're at on the map. God's favor toward you. You are here. And then peace, grace and peace. Shalom, that means all relationships are are rightly ordered. Your relationship with God, others, yourself, rest of creation, it's all firing on all cylinders. As you locate yourself in God's grace, you experience this right ordering of all relationships. That's what we long for. Mental health, spiritual, emotional health, relational, we long for this thing called shalom, peace. And this is, this is what Jesus gives us. This is what Jesus offers us. Um, and this, so this is how the letter comes to you. The tone is grace and peace as you locate yourself. You are here. And so I just want to take a moment right now and acknowledge the God who's disposed favorably toward you right now. And he's in the room. And can we all breathe and just maybe put your feet on the floor and we're going to pray. And just say, Holy Spirit, come. Because when he comes, he has grace and peace for us in Christ. He has favor and rightly ordered relationships for us in Christ. And so, Holy Spirit, come. Just magnify Jesus. Make a whole bunch, make much of Jesus in this place today, we pray. We pray this. We ask you to have your way in our hearts. Continue to reveal our location in you today. In Jesus' name, amen. And then verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So Paul begins with gratitude. Remember, Colossians is unique in the New Testament because of its heavy emphasis on this thing called gratitude. Uh, and Which is really compelling when you remember Paul's writing this from literally a prison pit. It's, it's all about gratitude and he's writing from the worst conditions imaginable. That's, that preaches. That preaches. How was Paul able to stay thankful in, in prison, in a Roman prison? Look at verse 3. Here's how. He says, we always thank God when we pray. So I just want that to sink in for a minute because it hit me afresh. It felt like a, like a very welcome alien concept to me, like a fresh thing for me. Last Wednesday as I'm writing this sermon, I'm like, we always thank God when we pray. When we pray, we always thank God. Apparently, prayer unlocks gratitude. Somehow prayer releases thanksgiving. We always thank God when we pray. Why is this true? Well, one helpful way to think about prayer, for me, has been prayer is faith breathing. What does that mean? It means in those moments when genuine gratitude feels out of reach and it's almost like you're spiritually suffocating, a self-aware question I ask myself is, how am I praying? How am I breathing? Am I breathing? How's my faith breathing? Growing up in church, I don't know about you, but I heard you know, the question a lot, how's your prayer life? I heard that a lot. Uh, and that question might feel familiar or even cliche. I get that, but it's the right question. How's your prayer life? That is, a, that is the right question. It's an old question, but still the right one. 
And, and really, this was a strange, beautiful aha moment for me, and it's this. Maturity never graduates from simplicity. And, but that's not how we think, is it? We tend to think graduating or progressing is always a great thing. So it's always a good thing to progress beyond what we see as simple things behind us. We're like, oh, I grew up with that practice. I grew up with a prayer life. I'm kind of beyond that now. Or I grew up thinking this way, but now I've progressed. And I think a lot of that is true and good. I think obviously learning and growing and progressing is part of what it means to be a healthy organism, right? But I want to make a very important point. Simply progressing in and of itself is not a virtue. Just because an idea or a way of thinking is progressive, it doesn't mean it's good. It might be. It might be wonderful. But it might not. Because progress is only good if it's progress toward something good. Am I right? Growth is good if it's growth in the right direction. There's such a thing as bad growth. Not to be too triggering or gross, but like I immediately think of like a cancer growth. In the body, when it, when it grows, doctors actually call that progression. And they even have stages of progression. So the idea of progress in and of itself is not automatically a good thing. It has to be progress in the right direction, right? It has to be growth toward maturity in Christ. That's good growth. So all of this, I'm, I'm letting you in on my process last Wednesday. All of this led me to this moment about prayer last, this, this week. My maturity in Christ will never graduate from the simplicity of prayer. I mean, this is an aha thing for me. I don't know if it is for you. Maybe you're like, yeah. But for me, I, 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 I'm realizing I will always need an intentional, prioritized rhythm of breathing, prayer. This is why we're embracing our bread practice for the year. You can still buy journals to follow along praying through the New Testament, not just reading it, but praying it together because humans require prayer for our faith to breathe, which means if I'm ever moving on this idea of a, if I'm ever moving beyond a prayer life or whatever, then generally speaking, I shouldn't feel surprised if gratitude feels distant. I shouldn't be surprised if, if faith feels difficult. Again, this is generally speaking, generally. Sometimes I believe it's possible to go through seasons where our faith is struggling even though we're totally faithful in prayer, 100%. Absolutely. But I do think that's the rare exception. In the vast majority of the time when I meet and I walk alongside people experiencing a crisis of faith, I think anecdotally, nine times out of ten, prayer is not a part of their lives. Because, and it's easy, it's easy to forget to breathe. Your maturity in Christ will never be a graduation from the simplicity of prayer. Rather, your maturity will rise and fall on prayer. Do you have that slide? Slide 12. Your maturity will rise and fall on this thing. And I will add, it's not easy. <laughs> a vibrant prayer, living prayer life, it requires intentionality and priority, which is why we have Seek First Sunday. Every first Sunday of the month, it is a communal breathing night where we all get together inhale the presence exhale our petitions and our cries and our songs and for one another the joy of being followers of Jesus we speak the truth over each other and then of course we emphasize prayer in our community groups we want we have to, we have to be intentional about that 
Maturity in prayer requires this priority. Paul writes, we always thank God when we pray for you. So now Paul tells the Colossians why he's thankful. Here's why he's thankful. Keep reading. Verse 4. Why is he thankful? Because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love you have for all God's people. The faith and love, they spring from the hope. Faith, hope, and love, all in one passage. They spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard the true message of the gospel that's come to you. So Paul's saying, I'm so grateful that the gospel is alive in your church. And what are the signs of a living gospel in a church? It's those three vital signs. There's faith there. Meaning that church trusts in who Jesus says he is. There is an unashamed trust in the gospel, in this thing called the teachings and the way of Jesus. And, and that trust, it leads to a culture of love. Oh, that's a second vital sign. There's love there. Love. Love defined by Jesus, which is a willingness to sacrifice my own comforts for the sake of the weakest member of the community. So love is specifically for Jesus, a willingness to disadvantage myself for the advantage of the other. That's a sign that the gospel is alive in a church. And, and, and then finally, that faith and that love, those two signs spring from the third sign, which is this hope that gives fuel to our ability to trust Jesus and love one another well. It's called hope. And where does that hope come from? Back to the airport, back to the mall. You are here. Oh, good. I have hope. You are here. You are not hopeless. You are not rudderless, compassless. You are in Christ 100%. Nothing you do or say or can be done to you or said about you can change your location. And this suddenly orients you towards hope and then faith becomes breathing and then love becomes a culture where people are disadvantaging themselves for the sake of the already disadvantaged in their community. So now, now pay close attention to this progression. What we believe, I think it's slide 13, maybe 14. What we believe is just faith. And how we live should be love. That flows directly out of our vision of the future. Hope. Again, it's that dot on the map. In the future, I now know where to go. I now know where I am going. Which is why when the future feels uncertain, we feel hopeless. Right? Hopelessness feels, it can feel absolutely devastating. When you're hopeless, you say things like, my situation is just not getting, it's not going to get better. Or I have no future. No one can help me. No one can help me. I feel like giving up. It's too late now. It's too late now for me. You know, I'll never be happy again. Hopelessness. Listen, if you're here and you're struggling with any of those feelings, I want you to know, first and foremost, you are not alone. You're not the only one with those feelings in this room. Not even close. And the reason why those feelings feel so bad, and we believe we're alone in them, is because then, then now, we're, now we feel shame. 
Now I'm ashamed that I'm the one who's probably alone who's thinking this thought at church or yesterday. You, you feel alone, then you feel ashamed for feeling alone, which makes you more alone. It's just this vicious circle of hopelessness, which brings you to number two. Those legitimate feelings of shame, those things that you feel that are real feelings, you do not have to be stuck with your shame anymore. You don't have to be stuck with that feeling. It's re- we're, not, we're not delegitimizing the real shame feeling, but you don't have to be stuck in it. You do not have to hide there. That's the whole point of this church thing. It should be, at least, in a healthy church that's breathing. You, you can bring your hopelessness and the shame that comes with it, knowing you're not the only one, and receive the truth about who Jesus says you are, his beloved child, at the table, in his family, and nothing can take that status away. You can receive that, full stop. You can receive that here, full stop. Don't believe the lie that you're somehow less than for not feeling like it's all together or for feeling like your heart is broken. Did you know, and this is the third thing, if you have a broken heart, if you're hopeless and you have a broken heart, Jesus is specifically here for it. That's his mission. Did you know that was, that was his stated mission in his hometown, in front of the people he grew up with that should have despised him? He said, actually, my mission is here to bind up the brokenhearted. I'm, I'm specifically drawn with special interest to those who come into this space feeling brokenhearted. That's Jesus' mission. So you're not alone. And that shame from feeling alone, bring it belongs bring it here where we can all deal with it together because Jesus is here for it Jesus is here for it he's with you in it and we want to be with you in it sometimes we need all the help we can get to see a future worth living for Jesus is here for that that's why we walked through the book of Revelation last year because Revelation is this picture of the future hand-painted by the one who holds the future the good news of the gospel is that, that that's, that's all real. That, that hope is real because the future is settled, doesn't change the environment that's difficult, but it orients you correctly within it. You are here. You guys, you're here. We don't have a crystal ball, so we can't see the future with our naked eyes. Jesus knows this, so he comes to us through the gospel, and he tells us that the greatest unseen reality of the present moment is the future eternal King Jesus who is present to us now through the word, the table, prayer, bread, and cup. Jesus is present and moving toward you today. He's inviting all of us to trust him in everything. And so when we admit our need for that and submit our lives to that king, his good authority, we become children of God. And God fills us with his own spirit so we can live like his maturing children in the confidence that our future is settled. To use Paul's language, that your hope is stored up for you in heaven. And don't think some floating cloud bliss that you go to when you die. Think the space God lives that is breaking in now. Heaven is both a destination and it is a present reality just behind the veil. It's God's space. And when we trust Jesus for this, we're no longer alone. We realize We're no longer alone. We're part of a massive family shaped by the gospel. Paul says it like this in the next verse. We're moving right through the passage. He says, in the same way, 
What same way? All the faith, all the hope, all the love, all the proof that faith is alive. In the same way, this is happening all over the planet. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, who's probably the, you know, Scott Kern of Orange County. Epaphras is like the Scott Kern of Colossae. He's planting a church in Colossae, uh, and whoever Epaphras' wife is was the Bella or whatever. So you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, who also told us of your love in the Spirit. You guys, this is happening everywhere. He's remind, remember, he's locating us. He's saying, you are here. He's reminding this church, you're not alone in this. This family of hope is exploding all over the planet. At that point, they didn't see a spherical planet, obviously. They didn't have the Hubble Space Telescope. They were thinking the known world at that time. Whatever the known world is, Paul's like, I've seen the gospel at the edges of it. And this family of hope is exploding, even though you, even though you haven't seen it. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Trust me. So... This is helpful for us. The Colossians are this little church in a big city, just like Park Hill in San Diego. And Colossae had all kinds of gods you could buffet sample from. Uh, The whole Roman pantheon, plus Caesar is Lord. Caesar is divine Lord, stamped on all the coins. And so you can imagine the temptation, this big city with all these gods and all these philosophies, and we're like this little church in a little 177 building, like Colossae, we're in this little building, and we're thinking, how dare we think we are the true followers of the true Lord when there's all these great options out there? We're so small. We feel insignificant. To which Paul responds, no, 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 no. This thing is spreading like wildfire, you guys. You know, you, he's like, you know how the gospel is lighting up your hearts with faith, hope, and love? It's doing the same thing 30,000 foot. It is, and he reminds them of this big picture because he knows there's hope in this picture. And with a wide-angle lens, he gives them a wide-angle view. And in the same way, it's important for us to do this. We can do this. We can locate ourselves in the big picture. So let's do it. 21st century San Diego, similar to 1st century Colossae, walking around our city, it's easy to feel, man, gospel people obedient to a book that was written thousands of years ago how are we significant? That's so weird. And, and it's very easy for us to feel this. So Rebecca McLaughlin, McLaughlin, uh, PhD from Cambridge, she's written a great book that we've made available in the past called Confronting Christianity. Incredible work. I brought up this data from her before. So encouraging. Rebecca does what Paul did. Paul helps them locate themselves in, in, in the social scheme. And, and Rebecca does this too. Let me just... Here's a couple paragraphs from her. In Western Europe, in North America, the proportion of people identifying as religious has certainly shrunk. So you've heard of like the rise of the nuns and deconstruction in America. It's true. People are leaving religion in the West. But at a global level, the latest projections suggest that by 2060, Christianity will still be the world's largest belief system, increasing from 31 to 32% of the world's population. Islam will, not with, Islam will increase to 31%. Atheists, agnostics, and nuns will decline from 16 to 13%. Christianity is spreading so fast in China that experts believe China could have more Christians than the U.S. by 2030. And they could become a majority Christian country by 2050. 
The question for the next generation is not how soon will religion die out, but Christianity or Islam? That's the question. And even here at home, you guys, that's, that's global. In America, it's actually not as bleak as some would suggest. Nearly 40% of Americans raised non-religious become religious, usually Christians, as adults. While only 20% of those raised Protestant switched to non-religion. In other words, you know what this means? Your secular friends are twice as likely to raise kids who become Christians as you Christians are to raise kids who become non-religious. So that's the way this cookie's crumbling right now. Uh, and to look at Christianity, not just from an American perspective, but back to the global perspective. So it's, it's basically, here, here's the summary. Here's the point. The average Christian in the world right now is not male, but female. Not white, but brown or black. More likely from the majority world than the West. Likely charismatic, which is by far the fastest growing branch of Christianity today. So when you imagine the largest belief system, just the largest belief system in the world, uh, you, picture, you can picture a 23-year-old woman of color who hasn't been to a passion conference. She's never read Christianity Today. She'll never see your Facebook feed or my Instagram page or whatever. While we sip our matcha lattes and listen to our progressive podcast, she's opposing the power of darkness through joyful obedience to Jesus and prophesying in the power of the Spirit with her community. This is, this is the Christian of the planet. And so... The gospel is bearing fruit, you guys, growing throughout the whole world. We need this, we need it, you are here. You are here. And Paul's like, it's growing just like it is with you. Look at your community group. What is, what is the fruit of faith and hope and love? What is the concrete evidence that Jesus is working in people's hearts in your community group? Yeah, just like that, it's happening everywhere else too. That's what Paul's saying. Praise God. So what does this all mean for us? All of this leads up to the final prayer of this intro text. He's like, because all of this is true, because faith, hope, because God is working powerfully, Paul prays this, the final passage of today. For this reason, because the hope of the gospel is alive, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, So I, I'm convinced there's 20 years worth of sermons in that prayer. So a, a, a sermon conclusion on this day, Sunday morning, will not do it justice. 
20 years of sermons. We could do a whole year on just how the Holy Spirit gives us understanding. Can you keep that slide back up for a bit? We could do it four years just on that second part. Verse 10, living a life worthy of the Lord. (laughs) If we do four years on that, what does it mean to please God? What is the pleasure of God? When God feels pleasure, what is that? We could do two years on that. And then a whole year on power. With all the different ways power is abused today, how much more sweet does that make true power? And how, how, how power in the kingdom is not top-down dominate your employees or your opponents, but it's power under. It's, I'm, forgive, I'm on the cross forgiving my enemies as they wound me. That's power. And then after we get done with that for a year, we could do 10 years on that last part. Verse 12, what it means to be qualified by God to inherit Jesus' authority. To inherit Jesus' inheritance. What does it mean that God has qualified humans? What are we qualified for? Ten years. Easy. I mean, that would, be, that would be Genesis 1. Adam and Eve purpose. Exodus freed, qualified as no longer slaves. Moving into a nation and kings that failed and succeeded and disqualified themselves and qualified themselves. And then Jesus, who lived the old, only fully qualified life. You guys, 10 years. We could do the whole, it's the whole Bible, that verse. Verse 12 is the whole Bible. And this is the intended force of this final prayer. That we would internalize the sheer magnitude of you are here. Your identity is in the Messiah. And nothing you do or say or can be said or done to you can change that. You're here. You're here. Whatever you're going through, those circumstances, they won't shift, but your orientation to them absolutely will. Remember, Paul's Christ's acting deputy. Christ is the only sheriff in town, but Paul's a deputy. So this is not just what Paul wants for us. This is what Christ wants. He wants us, simply put, Verse 19, uh, slide 19, he simply, he wants that God would fill us with his will. That's it. That's how the prayer actually begins. And everything else in the prayer flows from the knowledge of God's will. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. And, it, and from the will of God, from you knowing the will of God, all the other riches flow. And so the question becomes, how do you know God's will? What is God's will? What does it look like? We often talk about God's will like something that's hidden that we have to find, like finding God's will for your life or something. But that's never how the Bible talks about it. I want to end us here because I think this, I think this might unlock some hope for you, for many. The scriptures don't talk about God's will as something hidden you have to find. Every time you see that you would know the will of God, it's always something revealed already that you have to obey. It's not something, God's will is not something hidden you have to find. It's something revealed that you get to obey. That's the will of God. That's knowing the will of God. Acknowledging it's revealed and then doing it. Wait a minute. So what about like who I'm supposed to marry or not marry or where I'm supposed to move? What, what school I go? Should I go to school or should I... You know, try to be a professional, whatever. And, and 
I just want to say <laughs> yes to that. And, and Gary, one of the Brashears who's going to come and do one of our House of Learnings, he puts it this way. What is God's will for your life? It's you doing whatever makes you most deeply happy as you become like Christ. Knowing God's will for you is you doing whatever makes you most deeply happy as you are becoming like Christ. Well, how do we know what that is? My emotions are changing. And I love Brashears. He's a mentor of mentors. He's so, so good at bringing it down to where I can understand. And, and, and his thing is, Scripture keeps you from sin. Wisdom keeps you from stupid. <laughs> and, and the rest is you doing what most deeply pleases you as you are becoming like Christ. What do you want? So Psalm 34, 17 is true. Delight yourself in Yahweh and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's true. So we discern the scripture in community, not privately. We discern wisdom in community, not privately. We need each other. And once we know what's sinful and what's stupid, we don't do those things. And then we do what we most want. We do what we most delight in. And as we do that and become like Christ, then that prayer is being realized. You are rightly oriented. You are here. You are here. So God's will on who you marry. Nope. It's more like what kind of person you are becoming, whether you marry or not. So God's will on where you work. Nope. It's more like what kind of person you are becoming, whatever your hand is busy doing, whatever you're doing. And from there, you do what most makes you deeply happy in becoming like Christ. You are here. You're here. So, so that's it. As a child of God, this is your location. And your orientation is now gained. You, you have a grounds for hope. And I don't know about you, but when I think of all of reality this way, I feel, I feel calm. There's a calm. No wonder Paul says grace and peace to you. He, he gives you the receipts. He shows his work. Grace and peace to you. Here's how. And so I want to um, end with the prayer practice. If I could invite you to pray that last verse, inserting your own name. Instead of just general we, us, insert your name. You know, uh, Christina, Paolo, Greg. Like, if you, if you can insert your name in the blanks, do the last, the last slide. This is how he ends the prayer. But I want you to pray this over yourself. Uh, and giving thanks to the Father who has qualified me to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light for he has rescued Evan from the power of darkness and brought Evan into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom Evan has redemption the forgiveness of sins now you do it for the next 30-40 seconds pray slow Invite the Holy Spirit to affirm what you are speaking over your own identity. You are here. Holy Spirit, come.
Holy Spirit, come. Burn this truth into our soul day by day. Thank you that this is true about us. You guys, if you've admitted your need for Jesus and believe that he is the crucified and risen Savior who has now obtained authority, authority over the universe and all things belong to him, including yourself, if that's what you confess, then that's the truest thing about you. That's the truest thing you can ever say about yourself. The flip side is also true. If you've not submitted your life to Jesus, then this is not yet true about you. If your life is in rejection or unwilling opposition, willing, unrepentant and willing opposition to the way of Jesus, then I would invite you to make this true about you. (laughs) Say yes to the offer of God's presence over your life. He loves you. And, And... that's, that's the invitation for all of us in the room, is to say yes for this. Say yes to this. If you're a Christian, you believe, you've been believing lies, I'm disqualified, I'm alone in my shame, uh, th- then you get to shed those lies as best you can. Some of them are hard to break. A lot of them are. But we get to do it together as we come to the table. This is the truest thing about you. So can, can we all stand together? And that'll just stay on the screen, I think. If we could keep that slide up on the screen, it'll be the, our guiding light for the rest of our gathering. Whenever you think about it, look back up at the screen as you're walking to the table and, and say it again, and say it again. I saw some of you taking pictures of this. These are the last three verses of Paul's prayer, 12, 13, 14. It's the truest thing about you. So feel free right now. We're going to come to the table as we enter into a worshipful like, response time. Um, and feel free to come to the table looking at that true thing about you the whole way to the table. And then bring your bread and cup back to your seat and we'll conclude the gathering once we're all back at our seats and I'll lead us in that. So come forward. Let's receive the bread and the cup.